Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 434, The Boys. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to an episode where Dr. Z and I are discussing the courtly matters of sex and violence. And if you'd like to listen to that episode and all the other members' episodes, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Sophie, Shay, and someone who listed their name as thank you for signing up already, which honestly was a clever way to get your name read twice. So thank you for signing up already. By the mid-1070s, the House of Normandy was struggling. And I'm not talking about William here. I'm talking about his house in general, because as busy as William had been in his cross-channel land grabs, he still found time to have a lot of kids, and things were getting a bit dicey. Now, we haven't mentioned them much yet, but by the 1070s, these kids were growing up, and they're beginning to appear in the record. Now, unfortunately, the scribes don't tell us much about William's kids until they start doing things that they consider important enough to write down. So that means that we have big gaps in our knowledge about them, including really important things like birthdays, even birth years. And because this wasn't an enlightened or well-recorded time, what little we know about William's sons, well, we know even less about William's daughters. In fact, our record about his daughters is so poor that we don't even know what order they were born in. And there's actually a debate about precisely how many daughters there were. And this disinterest is one more result of the cultural shift of this era, where women were being driven deliberately out of any sort of power or influence. And this trend will only get worse with the rise of Norman England. There were exceptions, of course. But the circumstances that allowed those exceptions were rare. Generally, a daughter of a nobleman only had two career paths. Marriage, which was arranged for the political or economic benefit of her male family members, or cloistering in a nunnery. If you were an aristocratic girl, those were your options. And marriage was far from guaranteed. Finding a suitable marriage was actually quite a hurdle for many noble kids, and as we'll discuss in future episodes, not everyone cleared it. But the point is that if you were a daughter of a nobleman, power was deliberately kept out of your reach, and any influence and power that you might have access to, like if you were placed in a politically powerful marriage, would have to be wielded indirectly. And as such, it was less likely to catch the attention of the scribes, who seemed particularly disgusted by women, even for the time. But the boys were a different matter. And as those noble boys grew into noble men, who could wield the kind of power that the scribes were interested in, well, they appear more frequently in the record. And so today, we're going to be introduced to William's four sons. And we've already briefly met William's eldest son, Robert Curthose. And you might remember that when he appeared in the record, he'd also been a bit of a disappointment. When he'd been tasked with governing Maine, that whole thing had not gone well, as evidenced by the fact that the House of Normandy had lost control of Maine. But 
while that was a difficult start to his noble career, we shouldn't place the blame for it solely on Robert's shoulders. Actually, the records generally indicate that Robert was a fairly intelligent and accomplished young noble. And as historian Frank Barlow notes, quote, everyone agreed that Robert was a fine soldier, skillful and brave, with a generous nature, winning ways, and a plausible tongue, end quote. And a look into the entire political situation in Maine suggests that the trouble there was the result of a lot more than simply Robert's youth. But that said, William himself had given young Robert the cruel nickname Kurt Hose, or Short Pants, so I think it's pretty clear how he felt about his son and his capabilities. And the record is pretty much universal here, that William didn't think his son was ready for prime time. And if that fact was obvious to the scribes, then it would have been all the more obvious to the members of court, not to mention William's sons. And actually, Orderick reports that shitty nicknames weren't enough for William. He goes on to tell us that, quote, William, though a father, sometimes cursed in his anger his rebellious son and wished him all sorts of evil, end quote. That son being his firstborn and heir, Robert. Now, to be fair here, Robert gave his father plenty of reasons to be that angry, and we'll get to that story later. But what you need to know at this point is that William and his firstborn son, Robert, were not on the best of terms. And looking at what contemporary scribes had to say about the two men, it's not hard to see why. We're told that Robert was greedy, ambitious, and combative. So, a lot like dear old dad. But where that similarity becomes dangerous is when you consider that William had another trait. He got really suspicious anytime somebody asked him for something. Do you remember that delightful story where the mourning family members of William's fallen soldiers pointed out that he hadn't thanked them for their sacrifice? And then William responded by declaring them enemies and trying to find ways to sentence them to death? Yeah, that was William's reaction to being asked for a thank you. And as Robert got older, acting on his ambitious nature, he started asking his dad for something. And it wasn't a thank you. He wanted Normandy. Which, honestly, is exactly how inherited power works at this point in history. But William still resented the hell out of it. And Robert resented his father for denying him. So obviously, there was going to be some tension between these two guys. But if we're being completely honest here, given the structure of 11th century parenting, William probably had no one to blame here but himself. You see, at the start... Matilda, along with a nurse or two, would have been responsible for their children's early education. Walking, talking, eating, general behavior and everyday life, that sort of thing. Then, as the boys grew, they would be assigned tutors. In general noble life, the tutors tended to be low-ranked clerks, though if a child was highly ranked, then his tutor might also be highly ranked as well, as we're going to see later in this episode. But regardless of rank, these tutors were responsible for imparting foundational literary and religious education. And this would generally cover topics like the basic rules of morality, what constituted wisdom, how to pray properly, how to conduct important rituals, all the ground rules that would be essential to a life spent in court or among the clergy. 
And it was this stage that laid the basics for what would become their true education. You see, as they aged into their roles as nobles, then they'd need to know how to navigate the truly cutthroat world of medieval noble society. And that meant that they had an enormous list of rules, many of them unspoken, that they had to master. And a tutor wasn't equipped to train noble boys for the social battlefield that they were about to enter. The boys would need the experience of someone who actually held the roles that they were destined to inherit. There's simply no substitute for the real thing. So they needed to be able to watch and learn from the real players. And it was at this point in their education where their fathers came off the bench and finally entered the parenting game. Though when the father wasn't around, as was the case for William, then that task would often be carried out by another man of suitable rank. This would typically be a stepfather or a male guardian whose training and education was focused on court politics and battlefield tactics. And getting back to William's sons, the scribes do mention that they had assigned tutors, but were not told of any guardians. And as such, it's generally assumed that this meant that William was taking on the role of training the boys. And that would mean bringing them along with him to court. By doing this, he was having them watch what it meant to rule, right there as it was happening. He was directly and indirectly teaching the boys how to behave as 11th century chivalric nobles. Well, not all the boys. William's youngest son, Henry, was specifically not carted along with the royal court, and we'll get to him in a minute. But at least for the eldest three brothers, their education in what it meant to be a nobleman in the 11th century likely came from William. And if you listened to the members episode recently, then you know that even by the standards of the time, William was a lousy role model on that front. And given his own childhood, he wasn't likely to win any parenthood awards for the other stuff either. So, if William wasn't pleased with how Robert was turning out as a young nobleman, he had no one to blame here but himself. But, William had a lot of kids. And if he felt that his heir was turning out to be a bit of a shifty f**k-up, he still had the spare. His second-born son, Richard. And based on the documentation, William was doing what a good medieval noble father should do in this situation. He was raising his second-born son to be familiar with the halls of power and to know what constituted a proper Norman man. And by 1070, we see Richard appearing in various important witness lists for councils, charters, and writs, showing that he was being groomed for noble life. And when he wasn't at court learning about politics and statecraft, he was out with the fellas learning about chivalry. You know, hitting stuff, Breaking stuff, setting stuff on fire, killing stuff, stealing stuff. All the stuff that Norman nobles liked. And that's just the stuff we know about. And this training program was working out really well. Richard was checking all the boxes and was, by all reports, a promising member of the new House of Normandy. Even Orderic tells us that Richard was quite popular. After Richard was the third son, named William, after his father. And probably to avoid confusion, William was given a nickname. The Miracles of St. Edmund, which was a contemporary account, claims that he was gifted a family nickname, one that was held by his great-great-great-grandfather, William Longsword. 
However, Orderick, who was also a contemporary account, tells us that he was given a different nickname that was much less illustrious. William Rufus, meaning William the Red, due to his red hair. Malmesbury later repeated the name, and so that's the name that stuck. And considering that King William had a habit of commenting on his kids' appearances through nicknames, I wouldn't be surprised if Orderick and Malmesbury were right here. Either way, though, we're going with William Rufus. And Rufus was likely born around 1060, which would have made him about five years younger than Richard, and nine to ten years younger than Robert. Probably. And as the third son of Duke William of Normandy, he was destined for uh, nothing much. His older brother, Robert, was expected to take over the Duchy of Normandy upon the death of their father. And actually, even when William invaded England, when Rufus was about six years old and became king, that really didn't improve the boy's situation. If his father decided to split up his titles, Normandy and England would likely be split between the first and second sons, Robert and Richard. So if Robert was the heir and Richard was the spare, then young Rufus was just an extra. Thanks to the downward social pressure that medieval life was built upon, this would have been starkly apparent. And this fact may have stung more than usual here, because Malmesbury tells us that young Rufus was also ambitious. Tough break. But even if primogeniture was lined up against him, there were still some opportunities for advancement for a young noble kid. I mean, there was always the church. And if Rufus was destined for the church, he had a hell of an advantage because he wasn't just the son of the king. He was also the student of Lanfranc. Yeah, while most noble boys were tutored by low-ranked clerks, that wasn't the case for Rufus. According to Malmesbury, his tutor was the f***ing Archbishop of Canterbury. And it's possible that they had done this because they were positioning him to enter ecclesiastical life. The trouble, though, was that Rufus had a strong personality, and it wasn't a personality that did great in holy halls. It wasn't that he was stupid. He wasn't. But it became clear that Rufus was much better suited for his chivalric life. Despite Lanfranc's influence on his education, it was in martial training and hunting where Rufus' interests truly lay. He had a natural aptitude for physical matters and a keen interest in pursuing them. Riding, weaponry, hunting, he was all about it. And it wasn't just for fun. He wanted to prove himself. So when training, if he was paired with peers his own age, he'd carry out his duties as demanded. But apparently, that bored him because what he really wanted to do was test his abilities against his elders. Like was said earlier, he was ambitious. He was also aggressive. Incredibly so. Rufus apparently felt shamed if someone took up arms before him in battle, or if he wasn't first to issue a challenge to someone. So for little Rufus, it wasn't enough to win a fight. He had to be the first to demand one. And there's something about the way Rufus stands out in the record, even today, that convinces me he had a big personality. By these reports, he was charismatic and generous when he wanted to be, 
and he was cruel and avaricious when he didn't. And most importantly, he was combative. And while Malmesbury assures us that Lan Frank's influence was able to contain Rufus's baser instincts while the priest was still living, it was the influence of William and Rufus's older brothers that shaped his personality and guided him through the rest of his life. And this aggression was such a clear character trait that outside sources, like the Welsh scribes of the life of St. Gwynthlu, tell us that Rufus was particularly warlike. And actually, that record comes from the period where Rufus was still a young man under the tutelage of Lanfranc. So apparently, he could not be repressed, not even by the archbishop. So that was Rufus. In many ways, the very model of what a conquesting Norman knight should be, for better or worse. And that brings us to the baby of the family, at least for the boys. Henry was born probably two years or so into the conquest, in about 1068. And the only way Henry could have been any lower on the line of succession is if he'd been born a girl. Henry had absolutely no hope of wearing a crown. And I wonder if that was why, unlike his brothers, he was raised in England and wasn't attached to the royal court. And that fact, incidentally, is why it's much more likely that Henry was raised and trained by an unrecorded guardian, while his brothers enjoyed a much more direct education in court. But whoever this anonymous guardian was, it seems that he and the tutors did a pretty decent job because Malmesbury reports that as a child, Henry was an incredibly dedicated student of his literary and ecclesiastical studies, so much so that the knowledge he gained continued to guide him throughout his adult life. And I need to point out here that education and literacy are two very different things at this point in history. Historians C.W. David and Frank Barlow both note that this education didn't extend to actual literacy. Instead, reading, writing, and Latin were reserved for students who were being prepared for the church. And you might think that given Henry's aptitude for intellectual matters, and also his position on the line of succession, he was basically a lock for religious life. So why didn't that happen? Why couldn't he read? Well, Henry, like his older brother Rufus, also liked to fight. And as Barlow notes, quote, their obvious pugnacity and fitness for the chivalrous life may have served to spare them the tonsure, end quote. It seems that everyone realized that if you put those boys into a monastery, at best, they'd end up riding around with an army cracking skulls like Bishop Turold, or at worst, just turn that violent attention to their fellow monks, also like Bishop Turold. Do you remember when he was busted for raiding the shipments headed for Bury St. Edmunds? Bishop Turold better appear in one of those biopics being made about William. Anyway, it seems that everyone agreed that one Turold was more than enough, and so the boys were being trained as knights instead. So, no literacy for them. And actually, it wouldn't be until another house sat on the throne of England, nearly a hundred years later, that the kingdom would once again have a literate king on the throne. The House of Normandy was a whole vibe. So, those were William's sons. Aggressive, ambitious, illiterate, 
and trained pretty much exclusively in chivalric culture. I'm sure it's fine. Anyway, sometime between 1070 and 1075, William's second-born son, Richard, was looking to let off some steam in proper knightly fashion. While he hadn't been knighted yet, he was probably only about 16 years old, he still wanted to kill some stuff and maybe hit some stuff as well. And as luck would have it, just a short ride from Winchester was a wooded area that, while it had a few hamlets and farms where people were scratching out a living, for the most part, it was wild and teeming with game. And that meant it was an excellent spot for deer hunting. Now, in just a few short years, this area would be known as the New Forest, and we'll be talking more about that in later episodes. But at this point, it was just a wooded area near Winchester. However, for the sake of clarity, I'm going to be calling it the New Forest. Anyway, so Richard got his fellas together, hopped on his horse, and went to the New Forest to go hunting. And this was medieval hunting. It was done primarily with bows and arrows, or maybe some spears and swords if he got close enough. But even with bows, you need to get really close to your prey. I mean, we're not talking about modern compound bows here. So even to have a chance at ruining Bambi's day, you either need fantastic camouflage, or you need something to drive your prey towards you, like trained dogs, or you need to somehow be faster than a deer. And in the case of Richard, it appears he went for option number three. Because he had the muscle car of horses. And what would be more fun here than riding faster than a deer? So he was all saddled up and ready to go. And quick note about this. Norman saddles don't look like the sort of saddles you usually see today. Modern saddles are designed for things like running, jumping, or ranching. And while there are a lot of differences in modern saddles, almost none of them look like the saddles a Norman chivalric knight would have been using. Norman saddles were designed for medieval warfare. They were built so that the pommel and the cantle of the saddle, basically what you imagine is the front and back, would keep the rider in his seat. So they are much higher than what we have today. They raised up to about the rider's waist in front and back. They're also crafted out of wood and reinforced with metal. So these things were built to be strong, but not flexible. It made the saddle difficult to climb onto, but it also meant that when a Norman knight hit something with a weapon or got whacked by someone else's weapon, the front and the back of the saddle would help keep him pinned to glitter hoof. And that's for good reason, because the only thing that was worse than fighting from a horse in a medieval battle was trying to fight under a horse in a medieval battle. Anyway, so Richard was strapped into one of these things, riding around the woods, and then he spotted something. A stag. Now, horses aren't known for being stealthy animals. And so the stag also spotted him. And it bolted. The chase was on. Richard kicked his horse, and they tore off after it. And on their heels were his hunting companions and whatever hunting animals they brought with them. Now, this area of England was as beautifully wooded then as it is now. Oak, ash, beech, birch, hazel, and all manner of other trees make this area their home. And they were flying past them as the stag darted left and right. 
and Richard and his horse kept pace, deftly keeping track of the animal while trying to close the distance to make the kill. Now, remember, Norman warhorses weren't all that tall, probably only about 14 hands, but they were muscular, which meant that Richard was strapped to about 13 to 1,500 pounds of Norman warhorse going perhaps 25 to 30 miles per hour through the woods. So this was a thunderous high-speed chase. As boy and horse charged through the woods, Richard was likely focused solely on the hunt, keeping an eye on that deer, waiting for the moment when he was close enough to strike. And they must have been close, because we're told that Richard was galloping at full speed after this stag, when suddenly the horse ducked under a thick bough of a hazel tree. And, well, Richard couldn't duck. He was pinned to his seat like he was on a roller coaster, so there was nothing he could do. The hazel bough collided directly into the wood and metal pommel at the front of his saddle. And that would have been bad enough. But don't forget that the back of the saddle, the cantle, was quite high and also made out of wood reinforced by metal. And all of it was strapped to 1,300 to 1,500 pounds of galloping horse that was still plowing forward at full speed. If the seat buckled, and given the forces in play, I'm guessing it would have, then the back of Richard's seat, the cantle, would have come racing forward to meet the pommel. Richard was crushed in his saddle, the medieval equivalent of a catastrophic car wreck. After somehow getting him free of the saddle, his companions rushed the boy to town to receive care. But there was nothing that could be done. This was a mortal wound, and all they could do was deliver him his last rites. He died shortly thereafter. And this is how William Rufus, the third son who was once so far away from power, became the spare. And sure enough, by 1074, we see both Robert and Rufus witnessing charters along with their father. After all, with the death of Richard, Rufus would need to be versed in all the matters of Norman statecraft. And it would have been an enormous change in the life for the young boy. And I'm guessing that all that time in court, dealing with documents and disputes, was driving young Rufus crazy. This was boring. And what he was most interested in was the real nuts and bolts of Norman diplomacy. Hidden stuff, breaking stuff, setting stuff on fire, killing stuff, stealing stuff, night stuff. And that brings us to where we're at in the current point in the story. You see, in 1076, troubling news was coming out of Wales. A few of the rebel nobles from the failed revolt of the earls had fled to the court of King Caradog of Gwent. And, well, William wanted them dead. He was reasonable, though. He said that he didn't care if Caradog killed them himself or if the Welsh king just delivered the nobles to William so he can do it. Either way, though, those nobles were dead men and Caradog needed to get it done. But here's the thing. Caradog had welcomed these men as guests. And while William played fast and loose with matters of honor, Caradog did not. 
And besides, with the death of King Blethyn and the chaotic situation in Gwyneth, King Caradog was the man who stood the best chance at becoming the second king of all of Wales. If he wanted to make a move and unite the region, he would need to demonstrate his power, not cower from the English. So Caradog refused. And that pissed William right off. We're told that he was consumed with wrath and was desperate for vengeance against these defiant Welshmen. But William was also a king, and an older king at that. He was well past the days where he could ride out and kill folks willy-nilly, no matter how much he'd like to. He had responsibilities. He had sons he needed to raise. And speaking of that, this was the perfect situation for young Rufus, who was about 16 years old at this point. He can make a name for himself here. And besides, given the look in his eye these days, it would probably be a good idea to give the combative young man someone to fight. And so Rufus was given command of, quote, an immense expedition of armed soldiers, end quote. And he rode to southern Wales to punish King Caradog on his father's behalf. Glamorgan was taken completely by surprise, and the region was pillaged ruthlessly and burned. Anything of value was seized by Rufus and his raiding soldiers. And as for the people, we aren't told how they fared, but it probably wasn't good. Now, curiously, we only know about this from the Welsh record. The English records don't mention it. And considering its ties to the revolt of the earls, and the rising star of Rufus, it seems like it probably really did happen. So why not record it? I mean, here we have a rising power within the royal family leading an attack upon a neighboring kingdom. And for all we know, this was the first time Rufus had been given a command of a military force. And yet the Normans don't even say boo about it. Why? Was it just another day at the office? and not even their scribes thought it was worth writing about? If so, that says a lot about the culture that this next generation was being raised in. Regardless, though, the House of Normandy was beginning to take shape. And that shape was violent. This next generation was ambitious, warlike, and greedy, cut from the cloth of their conquering father. And you'd think that William would be proud but actually, this seems to have given him trepidation. Those qualities in himself were assets, but in others, they were a problem. So he was keeping the boys close and keeping their wings clipped. They could watch him rule, but they couldn't rule themselves. After all, it wasn't like he needed another problem. He had plenty of problems. There was Anjou, there was Flanders, there was that traitorous Earl Ralph who was still free and active in Brittany, there was that asshole King of France, and finally, there was Waltheof. Yeah, this whole time, Waltheof was still alive and in prison, and that was becoming something of a scandal for William. Not only were the circumstances of his arrest considered dishonorable, but holding him this long without a trial was seen as barbaric. Like I said, William was not a good role model. 
and he's not going to get any better once he turns his attentions back to Waltheoff, which he will do next week. I'm the bad guy. Duh. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>